to the AKC podcast, an audio resource for staff at King's College London following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures which explores diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Handouts, presentation slides and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Good afternoon. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're talking about the Barbican, and we're thinking about architecture and community. The series so far has raised a number of important questions in relation to a wide range of buildings. Such questions include how do buildings express the priorities, values, and or beliefs of the human beings who build them? How do buildings contribute to shaping the priorities, values, and or beliefs of the human beings who use them? How can buildings help us reflect on the relationship between space, place, and the ways human beings give meaning to their existence? These big questions have been raised specifically in connection with the life and history of London, the city which, in our different ways, we are all inhabiting as we study and work at King's. One of the main reasons for holding this AKC series on London this semester is to offer us all the opportunity to reflect in rich and complex ways on the city in which we come together and to offer ourselves tools for relating to this extraordinary city with greater awareness of its multi-layered, inspiring and also challenging nature. This AKC series does not aim in any way to be comprehensive, and each of us will respond to the series differently, depending on who we are, where we're coming from, and our own priorities, values, and beliefs. We hope, in any case, that the lectures on offer and the questions they raise will help you gain a greater sense of connection with the city we inhabit. In the light of all of this, we thought it would be particularly interesting in today's lecture, midway through the series, to think together about the Barbican. The unique history and architecture of the Barbican allow us to continue addressing the kinds of questions the series has raised so far in fascinating ways. Given the remarkable combination of factors that have contributed to making the Barbican what it is, it offers a unique set of perspectives from which to reflect on what it means to think of the history and life of London through buildings. The first thing to say in this respect is that, is that the Barbican is not simply a building. It is a site with a remarkable history, now occupied by a remarkable set or complex of buildings, including thousands of residential units, a secondary school, a public library, a school of music and drama, and a world-class art center. And also remarkable is the way this set of buildings relates to the history of the site and to history more generally. And the way it could relate also to our own history. My history, your history, our shared history in London. In our lecture today, we will be focusing on the buildings currently referred to as the Barbican. We will start, however, with a brief overview of the history of the site and reflect um, a little on the particular challenges and opportunities the Barbican presents us with. 
Michel will then guide us in more detail through the process by which the current Barbican came to be. After that, I will offer some reflections on how we might think of our relationship with the Barbican relative to theatre and music, two of the art forms that are regularly performed in the Barbican Arts Centre. In the final part of our lecture, Michel will reflect on how the Barbican can help us think about the relationship between past, present and future, and on how relating to buildings can be an integral part of how we shape life's trajectories individually and collectively. On the handout, you have a chronology of the Barbican. The site begins to take shape in Roman times, when a, when a wall is built by the Romans around their settlement of Londinium, now London. That coincides with what still today, that roughly coincides with what is still today called the city of London. The site that became known as the Barbican sits just north of those original walls. Indeed, the name Barbican is etymologically connected to the Latin word for fortified gate, outpost, or tower. The area that is now the Barbican is where you see the church of St. Giles Cripplegate, just north of the city walls. Towards the end of the 11th century, a church is built in the area known as St. Giles Cripplegate. The church is still active today and is the most evident reminder on the site today of the site's long history. Some remnants of the later medieval and early modern walls were built around the site. You can see them. There are some remnants of the later uh, medieval and early modern walls are still today part of the site and have been integrated into the site's current architecture in fascinating ways. By the middle of the 19th century, so roughly around the time King's was founded, the Barbican was a densely populated area and the centre of London's rag trade. It had a population of about 14,000, which at the time was um, over 10% of the population in the city of London. Then, in 1940, during World War II, the area was bombed and destroyed. A couple of years later, still during the war, initial plans are drawn for the reconstruction of London. The idea at that point is to reduce the city's population by planning new satellite cities. Soon after the war, further plans for the reconstruction of London continued to conceive of the city primarily as a commercial centre, not a residential area. In 1951, the population of the city is just a little over 5,000 and the residents of the area of the Barbican just under 50. The campaign to re redevelop the Barbican as a residential area begins in 1953-1954, and Michel will guide us through a more detailed account of its development in just a couple of minutes. What I'd like to emphasize now, even just on the basis of the brief sketch of the Barbican's history I have outlined, are some of the significant challenges and opportunities offered by the Barbican for thinking about what it might mean for us to think of London in and through its buildings. For in London's history, the campaign in the 1950s to redevelop the Barbican as a residential area stands out as a remarkable moment that consciously wished to redefine the city as a place for human habitation. After the destruction of war, and in the context of a strong and deliberate tendency to conceive of the city instead as a place primarily for human business and commerce, rather than also for human life in a fuller sense. Like no other site can do, therefore, the Barbican offers us the opportunity to ask ourselves interesting questions as to the very conception of London as a place to be. What is the city of London? 
What should its purpose be? How should human beings come together in it? The Barbican represents a bold and striking and not uncontroversial answer to these questions. At the risk of generalizing, its story could be told in at least two contrasting versions. On the one hand, the story of the Barbican could be seen even today as a moving and inspiring statement that one of the essential purposes of the City of London is to be lived in by human beings. A decisive turning point in the history of London whereby the city consciously opens itself up again to human life in the broadest sense. From this perspective, the Barbican can be seen as one of London's most significant public projects, aiming through architecture to foster a sense of community in the city, bringing human beings together in residential and public spaces significantly characterized by a sense of shared culture, especially in and through the arts. On the other hand, the story of the Barbican could be seen as a dated and perhaps outdated statement, not of the value for London of a sense of community in general, but of the value for London of a very specific kind of community, that of a relatively wealthy and predominantly white middle class. A sense of community that might in the end communicate exclusion more than inclusion. The tension between these two stories is perhaps best expressed by the site's own architecture. True to its name, the architecture of the site, even today, deliberately recalls that of older fortifications. There are many open public entrances and spaces that everyone can enjoy in the Barbican. At the same time, especially from the outside, the architecture is not necessarily inviting and does not necessarily appear easily accessible. The reality of the Barbican is probably a complex mix of elements of both these stories. And each of us will, in any case, probably see it differently. However we see it, though, the Barbican undoubtedly offers a unique opportunity to reflect on what it means to live in London in relation both to the city's past and to its future. And one of the aims of our lecture today is to invite you to engage with the Barbican as a way of enriching your own sense of what it, live, it means to live in London, connecting both to its past and to its future. So, people and places. Places aren't made without people. And so the building of the Barbican is the story of people and of course with building power. How did it come about? What circumstances did it grow out of? As Vittorio's already said, in 1940, on the 29th of December, an enormous incendiary attack took place on the city of London. And we have Christopher Wren's St. Paul's Cathedral still standing, a testimony to the firefighters who rushed there. But during this attack, to save something, other things had to be lost. And it was this area that stands north, which is today the Barbican, that was lost. They were unable to fight the fires and the entire area was gutted. And the buildings that were left standing were not inhabitable. And the people that were left in that population count really were living in buildings that were not fit for purpose. So what comes out of the ashes? Well, as a biblical scholar, which is a story of destruction and rebuilding, I'm used to people moving back in again. But the City of London Corporation, which represented finance and commerce, were interested in those things. That's finance and commerce. And people 
are pawns within those things. And actually, their initial idea was to move everybody out and to facilitate the movement in each day of the 500,000 people that's called the Square Mile of London, their place of work. Now, the City of London is a unique area. As we stand today, there are 33 local authority-governed areas in London. 32 of those are boroughs, and one is the City of London. It's the most densely populated county in the country, and it has a unique long-standing history. It's run by the Corporation of London, and it sits within what's known as the Square Mile. And so when they were looking to redevelop the city, it was the idea of the corporation and their interests that were at the fore. So getting people out is quite a good idea, because then you don't need to deal with them. But the problem was, you need voters. And the City of London only had businesses to vote, and if it wanted to continue as an independent entity, it needed people. And so this was really the swinging vote, to repopulate the area of the Barbican, get people to move in. And who did they want to move in? People interested in the city. So what the Barbican was never intended to be was a programme of socialist housing. This was a programme of housing for people that were working in the financial district, middle and upper income. The idea was they would build something that would make them money, get the wealthy people to come in, charge them rents. These houses were not for sale. They were for renting out, get the revenue in, get the votes in, boom, everyone's a winner. And this is the area as it stood that they were looking at to develop. And these streets today have um, become lost in the redevelopment. You can see the plan and then the reality. There really was nothing there. This is a dream, though, at this time period. So we're talking the 1950s. This is when modernism is really starting to take a grip in Britain. And what does every modernist architect want? They want a blank canvas. And as Chamberlain, Powell and Bond, the architects that went on to build the Barbican, say, it only rarely happens in the centre of an old city that a large and clear intention coincides with a large and clear sight. <gasps> Le Corbusier's plans for redeveloping Paris are perhaps the most notorious, where he said, let's just get rid of all the old, in with the new. But Chamberlain, Powell and Bond got the opportunity to actually bring the new in. And when they were voted architects to build this site, they dreamed big. You've got to think post-war boom Britain. They'd been involved in 1951 in the Festival of Britain, which was celebrating all that the country had to offer and what it could become. And this is their 1955 plan for what the Barbican could be. It's taking us back into that period of the post-war mentality within Britain. They dreamed big, and they dreamed big with the corporation, and they made friends and enemies, as we all do. And it's brought out of tension that it sits as it does today. But they were also able to evolve, and they were very organic architects. And as the time goes on of creating the Barbican, we see them bring in more and more cutting-edge influences. And here it is being built. It was an amazing brief. Bring together in quite a small site a population density of residential accommodation, which would cater for 230 people per acre. It's extremely dense. They also had to put in a large secondary school, 
the Guildhall School, as Vittorio said, and provisions for an art centre. And because they kept dreaming big, they kept adding more elements. And so this is as the Barbican stands, this north area, which is on the far left there, was a later edition, which they fought for. And in the centre, this is the art centre going up. And it was a tiny area they were left with, but they kept dreaming big and bigger and bigger. And so what do you do if you can't build up? You build down. And so as the art centre stands today, it has this flow, as you can see. This is when it originally opened in 1982, 3rd of March. The Queen opened the Barbican Centre, Art Centre. It's nine floors. But actually, four of those are underground, and it goes down well beneath the route of the railway, which they chose to reroute, by the way, underneath the Barbican site to facilitate it as a place to live. And crammed into this extremely tight area are all of these different arts facilities. It is a model of quite genius and unique engineering. And credit needs to be given to the engineers of Arab, who had a lot of influence and pioneering techniques to be able to make this. There's a three-metre concrete wall all around the art centre to stop the towers from falling in and everything from sinking. This is only 17 feet above sea level. So it's particularly special. But when you're going for something so big and when you aim so high, it's hardly surprising that tensions break out. And buildings, as I said, are about people. And in the end, it's about the people that literally built the buildings, the building contractors. It was built in five stages spanning from 1962-65 through to 1982. They had huge numbers of labourers come in, three different companies taking on different phases. And it broke out as an area of huge contention within the building industry. It had the longest construction strike in the history of Britain. It lasted for over a year. And what this strike tells us are the pressures of pushing higher and higher and harder and harder. The architects kept revisiting their plans. They were not hands-off people. Oh my goodness, were they not? Like, talk about micromanagers. They were six weeks behind with designs. They kept revising. And just to give you an idea, all of the concrete that makes up the Barbican was not prefabricated concrete slabs made off-site, but it was all done in situ. So they poured all of that concrete wet and allowed it to dry in concrete shuttering that had to be built up into those towers. Within that, they were making areas that were 20 feet big of concrete with large pieces of wood to hold it in. They had a one eighth of an inch margin for error within a 20-foot span of concrete. They pushed the engineers and the constructors to the limit, who pushed their employees to the limit. The benefit system, the different trades that were involved, the pressures broke out. And as I said, this is one of the longest construction strikes known. And it involved the entire country. People came down from Merseyside, from Sheffield, to join in this strike. And I um, have added a link onto the handout for you of a fascinating project done by the University of Westminster, which brings the voices of the people involved in this strike alive and shows you pictures that they took on site up on the top of the cranes when they were building it. And it reminds us, when we're taking photos, this PowerPoint is a testimony to my photo essay of the Barbican, when I'm taking these photos, the people that built this are able to speak behind it. It's not just an aesthetic experience. And so the building of the Barbican really represents 20 years 
and all these different people and tensions. So, with that in mind, I'm going to move back to Vittorio to take us through how we might be more involved. Right, so playing the Barbican. In this next section of the lecture, I wish to offer some reflections, general reflections, on the relationship between the Barbican and the arts and us. I wish to do this as a further way of opening up different perspectives from which we might think of how architecture and community are related in the Barbican, and of how we might participate in all this, if we wish to do so. I will be focusing in particular on theatre and music, two of the principal art forms regularly played in the Barbican Art Centre. Indeed, the Art Centre is the residence of two of the world's um, most prestigious institutions in the performing arts, the Royal Shakespeare Company and the London Symphony Orchestra. This is something that has been part of the vision of the Barbican uh, history since its early days in the 1960s, so long before the Art Centre was formally inaugurated by Queen Elizabeth II in March 1982. I won't say much about the Royal Shakespeare Company or London Symphony Orchestra in themselves, but I will take theatre and music more generally as suggesting fruitful ways for us to engage with the architecture of the Barbican and perhaps architecture with architecture more generally. Before doing so, however, I wanted to take in a look in a little more detail at the quotes you have at the beginning of the handout. First, you have the words of photographer Peter Bloomfield, invite, who was invited to document the construction of the Barbican and the Art Centre. He says the Barbican was going to be a significant part of the city of London, and I wanted to be part of it. Note how, in these words, there appears to be no hint of aesthetic judgment. What is significant is not what the Barbican looks like, but participation. What is significant is participation. The Barbican participates in London. So Bloomfield feels he should participate in the Barbican. Whether we like the Barbican or not, it is there as an extremely significant expression and living exploration of what London thinks of itself as a city. How might we participate in this? The second quote on the handout is, uh, uh, you have the words of designer Vivienne Westwood. Again, I'll quote these, it's a longer quote. Why shouldn't I love the Barbican? I'm in heaven at a concert or a play. Going is a privilege, a treat, an occasion. I love the space. Outside getting there is a mini adventure of anticipation. And inside during intervals, the open space is cozy because there is so much going on and you can see everyone and you feel you're protected in this large complex by the pleasure of it all. Once again, the emphasis is not on aesthetic judgment. Once again, the emphasis is on participation. Westwood refers to her love for attending plays and concerts at the Barbican. The experience for Westwood is one that seems to be characterized as much by how in the Barbican architecture and community are related as by the performance themselves. It's as if attending a performance at the Barbican is valuable in and of itself as living expression of what the Barbican is. In this sense, it might be possible to think of the Barbican not just as a place where plays and concerts happen, not just a place where performances happen, but as a performance in itself. The Barbican, we might say, is part of London's ongoing living performance of itself as a city. 
part of London's conscious fashioning of itself in the light of what those who live and work in it think it should be or could be. So let us think first about the Barbican as theater. In what sense might it be fruitful to think of the Barbican as theater? First, we might draw attention to the Barbican as dramatic or theatrical architecture. Just take this view behind me, for example. Indeed, these are the kind of terms that those who write or speak about the Barbican often employ, a theatrical landscape, dramatic architecture. The Barbican is certainly dramatic, and we can certainly speak of its architecture as theatrical. But what might we mean by this? We might initially think of the site on which the Barbican is built as a stage, perhaps, and the Barbican's architecture as what happens on it. Thinking of the architecture in this way might indeed bring it to life in our minds as living performance. We might think of it as a deliberate and articulate presence in space and time, a presence meant to construct its own virtually self-sufficient world, a world that is not static, but that in fact tells a story. The, the architectural presence of the Barbican is visually dramatic. No matter where we start from, if we let our eye follow the Barbican's striking buildings, we might think of the architecture as presenting us with a compelling presence, a compelling story about how space and time might indeed be inhabited by human beings. This applies to the Barbican's outdoor spaces. It applies to the Barbican's indoor spaces. The stairways, for example, uh, in the art center were specifically designed to encourage, on the part of audiences, the sense of participation in performance, in what goes on in the art center. And thinking of the Barbican's architecture in this way immediately opens up another important sense in which the Barbican might be thought of as theatrical. We might think of the Barbican not just as a theatrical presence on the stage that is London, but we might more specifically think of the Barbican itself as a stage for us, perhaps. Indeed, whatever we think of that idea, the Barbican itself does have many stages. You have directions there on how to reach them. The Barbican has many stages where performances happen. But what about the Barbican itself as a stage? Having suggested that we can think of the Barbican as a deliberate and articulate presence in space and time, generating its own virtually self-sufficient world, the next question is, how might we choose to inhabit this world? What role are we invited to play in the drama that is the Barbican? What role do we wish to play? In order to reflect on this, it is important, first of all, to recognize that many of the spaces that make up the Barbican, including the art center, are indeed public spaces. Spaces open to everyone, whether attending a performance or not. Indeed, these, these are spaces regularly used by many people for different purposes, from groups of students using the space to study together, to the homeless person using the public library to listen to the CDs available there. However we choose to be in the Barbican, by being there, or even by choosing not to be there, we are taking part in the performance that it is contributing with our presence to define what it means and what it might continue to mean for London, and perhaps not just for London. Another way of thinking about all this might be to recall that in a number of his plays, Shakespeare invites his audiences to think of the stage and the world not as separate, but as integrally related. 
of the world itself as a stage in which we all play our different parts. The Barbican offers a unique opportunity for each of us to reflect on the part we wish to play in the play that is London. So, after these few suggestions on how we might think of the Barbican as theatre, what about the Barbican as music? Again, as with Barbican as theatre, we can think of the Barbican as music in at least two interrelated ways. First, we can think of architecture itself as somehow musical. We can, for instance, zoom in on some of, it, of its architectural features, the architectural features of the Barbican. How are they repeated? And how are they related to each other? And how all of these relations taken together form a whole? We might indeed think of the Barbican like a piece of music, as having rhythms, motives, harmonies, different shapes and senses of direction, round, horizontal, straight, vertical, how different shapes and senses of direction interact with each other. And we shouldn't forget that interacting with these shapes and senses of direction is not, for us, a static but a dynamic affair. Where we look from and how we look at things will make a difference to how we perceive them. It's also important to remember the spaces in which we move. Perhaps some of those spaces we might not initially be uh, inclined to give a lot of attention to. One of the most significant features of buildings are the spaces and pathways that are specifically designed for human beings to move from one place to another. And this is especially important at the Barbican, which was specifically designed as a, as a pedestrian area, traversed by a complex network of elevated pathways. How we move through these pathways will make a difference to how we perceive the music that is the Barbican. Having said this leads us back once again to us. Once we have said that it might be possible to speak of architecture musical terms, the next question is, how do we wish to play this music? Do we in any case even wish to play it or not? However we wish to answer these questions, they once again open up even broader questions as to the significance of how human life unfolds in time and space. A piece of music cannot be listened to all at once. It takes time. A piece of music is a human composition that deliberately occupies time so as to allow us, with its rhythms, melodies and harmonies, to inhabit time in a richer way. Sometimes easy, sometimes difficult, sometimes sweet, sometimes jarring, sometimes comforting, sometimes unsettling. Architecture might be thought of as music in space. Architecture might be thought of as human composition that deliberately occupies space so as to allow us, with its rhythms, melodies and harmonies, to inhabit time in richer ways. Sometimes easy, sometimes difficult, sometimes sweet, sometimes jarring, sometimes comforting, sometimes unsettling. With its rhythms, motives, harmonies, the Barbican can be seen as a bold and striking comp composition that occupies space as to allow us to inhabit it more richly. Of course, architecture does not only inhabit space, but also time. Our lives do not happen all at once. They unfold through time. Indeed, architecture as an art form is also always in dialogue with time, with what has gone before and what comes afterwards. As we inhabit the spaces composed for us by architecture, perhaps we can think of our lives too as music. 
with its rhythms, motifs, and harmonies, music that connects us in deep ways, not just with the present moment, but also in and through the present moment with the past and with the future. Our past and our future, individually and collectively. So, keeping the Barbican, brutalist buildings in the United Kingdom and further afield are threatened. There are huge numbers of people signed up to the Brutalist Appreciation Societies. But with the loss of key shopping centres in Portsmouth, the threatened estates and the loss of Robin Hood Gardens, London's Brutalist monuments fall. The Barbican has a preservation order. It is a Grade Two listed building, listed in 2001. And so what happens with that now? It's not going anywhere in the near future, and it has a different level of privilege for having received that status. But it was built in the 60s, and as you can see here, the knobs on the cookers are starting to look a little bit worn. <sighs> it's a lot of cooking. The Barbican, as I've said, is made of concrete, and concrete is memory, concrete memories. Brutalism is often most associated with concrete, and what memories do we hold in concrete? What memories does London and the UK and the world as a wider um, system hold in concrete? For my friends who visit the site who grew up in communist Europe, it's a place that they find quite abhorrent to be in. It's unsettling, it's uncomfortable, and it's a reminder of something that they'd really rather not exist because for them, concrete means mass housing and oppression. As I said, it was built by architects that dream big, and concrete allowed this sculptural language that Vittorio has brought to life so articulately to make balconies that look like hooks in the sky, to make some of the tallest residential buildings in Europe at that time. Indeed, when they were made, they were the tallest residential buildings in Europe at 43 stories high, and they're still pretty big. And it was concrete that enabled this. And we have this monument to engineering and to that time period where it was seen to be a material that could change things. We have the memory of architectural language within the Barbican. And because the architects, as I've said, started thinking about this in the 50s, and actually the Art Centre opens in 1982, this is an extremely broad range of architectural languages and resonances which are enshrined in this concrete. Most obviously the late work of Le Corbusier with the Maison Jaoul and the Rochamp, a famous chapel. Can you see some inspiration for the balconies possibly? But also looking further afield, they went to Milan, the corporation in 1958. How do you get people on board? You take them on holiday. So. The architects took them on a little tour of Europe in 1958 to get them fired up with what other countries were doing because we want to be as good as them. And the irony is the Barbican reflects this European outward spirit. This uh, had been built in Milan at that time. They visited Germany. They were interested in what was going on in Berlin. And so the Barbican enshrines that relationship with Europe and that outward notion of being together and bringing influences from further afield. This is the time where people first got their Mediterranean cookbooks. But it also has a sense of Britishness about it and very specifically British middle-classness. It is a time capsule of what 
the British middle classes demanded in post-war Britain, or certainly what the Corporation of London and the architects thought they wanted. They wanted formal gardens inspired by Italian villas. And today, these are the sunken gardens that sit in the Barbican under the waterline. And there's formal gardens. Who, which British person doesn't want English pastoral landscaping if they're a good middle-class person? So that was also built into the Barbican. And in that sense, it has a retrospective feel to it. It represents everything that that class system had in it, where they were specifically aiming at a specific group, i.e. it was quite specific. But I want you to think about what the landscape and the people were like at this time. This is the concrete and the clay by Unit 4-2. Look at those funky dance moves. They are dancing in the Barbican site when it was first being built in 1962 cutting-edge pop. It's a testimony to the past and to memories of that group. But it's also a testimony, as I said, to the people that built it. Concrete doesn't come from anywhere. It has to come from aggregate, from building, and from people. And the Barbican pushed high and hard, and this beautiful rough concrete, also smooth concrete, has a price to pay. It was pick-hammered by hand by builders, every single rough concrete surface that you see in the Barbican, and that's the whole Barbican, all the way up the towers, was done by hand to make it look monumental. And these people bore the scars of this because if you're doing this all day into concrete with a pick hammer, you end up with white knuckle syndrome. And so there is actually a physical memory that the concrete holds in it, a brutal memory, literally. And so when you appreciate the details that the architects put in. Have a look down in the bottom left. That concrete had to be laid so that plug socket could go in that area. That was planned so that there could be an aesthetic plug socket. How much did they push the people involved and what was the cost when we look at this today? Concrete holds like a time capsule, as I said, and it's still there. And concrete has received a bad reputation the failing of social housing in the UK, pushed in 1981 by the right to buy and by the Thatcher government, who wanted nothing to do with social housing, meant that concrete was vilified. And in 1975, J.G. Ballard's novel High Rise shows that middle-class decadence and also the negative idea of living together in high bourgeois buildings, but also in the most recent filmic version of it, in 2015, the evils of concrete. Can concrete make people bad? The defensible space strategies that were brought over to vilify the estates in Southwark, um, such as the notorious Aylesbury estate, which was built with huge good in mind and had huge problems involved in it, have vilified buildings and spaces as creating bad people. It's a very paternalistic outlook. But the Barbican is caught up, as I said, in the middle class idea. And it's the middle class idea of the future as well, which we see. Here's a lift lobby of one of the towers. It's known as the Dalek. You press one of these buttons to get in a lift. It's a failed future. It's a future where high-rises and large estates have generally been said to fail. The um, Prue Igo estate in America when that's demolished being seen to be the pinnacle of 
mass housing in that way failing. But it stands to remind us of what people in the past dreamed of and what they thought the future would look like. But the Barbican has gone through a renewal. After falling off the radar, after being vilified by the press, the Instagram generation, that's us, have changed it. The concrete has become an aesthetic pleasure again. These spaces that were seen to be threatening under the defensible space ideas and the documentaries filmed in the Aylesbury estate, the terror of the empty walkway and who might lurk in the dark, this empty depopulated place has become an aesthetic experience and something to live and to experience. And isn't that ironic? Because as I've said, the Barbican was built to be a place of population. And it's through appreciating it with no people in it. How many of these photos did I take waiting for people to get out the way so that I could make the estate look beautiful? It's a place for people to get lost in. You can't use Google Maps here. In all the different levels, you will get lost. And walking around, one of the major things you hear is, this place is so confusing. It is. And is that a scary thing? Or is it something where we can be challenged? That's a question. And when Skepta in 2015 filmed Shutdown, this is marking a real reclaiming of the Barbican for a different generation. It's still alive and it's still singing, literally. And it's preserved because, ironically, of its middle class population, who are militant. What did the city do? It populated it. And what did it do? It populated it with overly articulate, militant, middle-class people. That if a paving stone is broken today, complains about it. There is a website where you can say, tile broken. That militance means that it is still pristine and that they fight with the corporation for their own rights. They created their own cuckoo. Any idea that buildings happen around or that there's any change is fought by the residents' community. It's people walking around that make the Barbican what it is. It was built for people, it was built for living in. It's a place of residence. It's a place where people still live. And the inside of the flats, many of them still survive, as I said, from the 60s. How well made were they? Look at the teak panelling that was used for the doors, for the intricate kitchens designed by the ship company Maroon Brooks, and the amazing Barbican sink, which uh, took six months to get those lines on. It's still there, and it's still being lived in, and it's still alive. And it's criticised for this because of its seen prestige. But the flip side is, as George told you last week, any of the new housing that's being built in London is luxury affordable housing. I.e., have you got eight million? because you can buy a nice little flat. How many public services are there? If you're lucky, there might be a Waitrose Mini shoved in the bottom of it. Public space being built with private housing? Not a chance. And although the Barbican may be seen problematic to have middle-class housing built in the centre of London, it stands today as a testimony to public space. This conservatory is free every Sunday. You can go and visit it. Second largest conservatory in the country after Kew Gardens. The terraces catch the sun throughout the day. They are free. A lot of the pictures you've seen are of public highways where you have the right to access 24 hours a day. That bridge going over the lake, that must be one of the most attractive public highways, byways in the country. 
they built something that ironically now sits in the centre of corporate London made for the public, where you can go and inhabit. You can use the free Wi-Fi, you can study, you can keep warm. How many buildings today are being built for people to live in that offer any level of public and private in dialogue in this way? So go, enjoy, be part of. Cities bring people closer together as part of this theme, and the Barbican stands in testimony to that. Ironically, by putting all of these different elements in together, schools, residents, art centres, and public spaces, the City of London Corporation created a city within a city, telling us of the tensions of what it's like to live together, residents and visitors to an art centre. It has that idea of problem, but it also has the idea of what it's like to be with each other and to dwell in London. So please do enjoy, and thank you very much for listening to us. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC at the heart of King's thinking.